Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I'd like to ask you to join me in Psalm 31 today. Psalm 31. As Trevor has already mentioned, it has been um, a very solemn week for most of us. Hearts broken. Uh, I find myself thinking back, uh, and I find myself thinking forward, and somewhere in the middle, and uh, you know, I've tried to think about what 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 does it what does it look like to to you know there's not a class on this not that I would have listened anyway probably but uh you know how do you navigate how do you navigate everybody through just well everybody's touched and 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 affected by such tragedy and at different at different levels uh but I I don't want to be and uh nor am I willing just to go through the motions of church. I don't think that's the point of church. Uh, I don't think that it's. I don't think it's the point of just gathering and doing certain elements and things. And so, just to be quite honest with you, I'm just not. I'm just not ready to move on and act like, you know, a normal Sunday. And so, I, I have a. I have a sense because of my relationship to most of you uh, that that we're not ready. Uh, now, I'm, I may be dealing with some things today that you may not be particularly uh, dealing with, but I, I thought it and sense it to be appropriate for, for us to just kind of talk a little bit about what, what does it mean and what can we count on. Uh, and I've found a few things in Psalm 31 that has helped me uh, this week, and I wanted to be able to give some of those things away from you. Again, they may not answer all of your questions and to be quite honest, I don't know that a single moment uh, in time can do that, but I want to be sensitive uh, to the season that the Lord has brought us to. Uh, and, and so, uh, very quickly, Jesus is, uh, in fact, I want to go just before that. Uh, J- Jesus begins talking about his death uh, far before his death. Uh, he is sharing with the disciples about his uh, crucifixion he, he's not specific on that but he does talk about his death and his impending death and his going away and it leaves his disciples scratching their head because they can't understand what that loss is going to look like and I say that because Jesus himself has been living as as a as a human yes he is God but he's he's dealing with the the thoughts and the feelings of humanity because we know we don't have a high priest that doesn't understand he understands he processes it And so he's living in anticipation of what that's going to be for quite a while before he gets there. And then he deals with the betrayal. He deals with, uh, I I believe that when he's crying over Lazarus, it's not because of Lazarus' death. It's because he sees the implications and how death affects humanity. 
Uh, and that's the brokenness that what death has caused in our lives and the questions that it causes and the ability to shrink back from power and, and confidence in the Lord and, and, and his friends are experiencing that and it's, it's, it's breaking uh, and, and his heart is breaking for them and, and then you get to his own betrayal and then you get to the absolute most grotesque death that a person can imagine and the the torture and the ridicule and the pain in, in fact it's so intense the anticipation is so intense that his sweat is turning to blood that's that's a human condition of incredible intensity we know that he's feeling it and then we don't know exactly how long but from mid-morning to mid-afternoon Jesus fully exposed in pain and terror on the cross dying an unnecessary death for himself, necessary for us. It's not his own death that he's dying. It's our death that he's dying. And, and Jesus makes some statements from the cross, and we won't go through all of those, but I want to draw your attention to Luke chapter 23, verse 46. You don't have to turn there. We'll only be there a moment, and it'll be on the screen. But in his last moments on earth, his last statement on earth, earth the last thing that he says uh, other than it is finished is then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said father into your hands I commit my spirit and having breathed his uh, after he said this he breathed his last now these these poignant words mark the culmination of all of his anticipation and expectation as he breathed his last. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the radiance of the glory of God, the word of God made flesh, sent into the world, the very last thing he said before he died and was resurrected was a quotation from Psalm 31. It may catch you off guard a little bit because oftentimes we're not told in the New Testament when a quote is specifically being given in the Old Testament. But Jesus' last words on earth was a quotation from Psalm 31. And that's why I want to kind of stick there for just a few moments. The, the last thing that Jesus has on his mind is not himself. The last thing that Jesus has on his mind is not how he is feeling in those moments. Jesus draws from the scripture that he had spent his earthly life on as he breathed his last. And so I think that it's something that we want to understand and we need to learn how to apply to our lives. And, uh, and so let's take just a few moments and let's, let's pray to the Lord, okay? Lord, we just ask today as we focus on your word and you are the word of God I pray that as we uh, listen to both you and the written word, that our hearts would be illuminated and uh, uh, maybe not necessarily salved this morning, but that maybe we could add to some of the things that you are teaching us and, and maybe, maybe use what we hear today from your spirit to kind of help us process not only this moment, but, but, but every moment. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just encourage us this morning. I pray that we would find hope this morning. I pray that we would find confidence, confidence this morning. I know that right now that, that most of us are living in a season of why, and that's appropriate. Uh, I, I pray that in this season of why, that, that we can 
while we wait for answers that may or may not come, while we wait for answers, Lord, it would be your grace that we could draw from. And it's the truth from your word that will satisfy us in the meantime. And so help us, Lord, this morning to learn more of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, I want to first start with the overall Psalm uh, 31, kind of give you a back, a back story on it. Uh, there are multiple types of Psalms, right? There are uh, different uh, buckets that you could put psalm, different Psalms in. Psalms are a book of songs that Israel would sing at different times according to the, the, the season that they may have been in or as they came together to worship. They would use these psalms much like we use our songs as well. But one thing about Psalm 31 is it doesn't fit in a bucket. It's a very, very interesting psalm. There are very few psalms like it. It doesn't fit into one of the buckets. It fits into its own bucket. Uh, there are three things happening here. First, there are statements of petition. David is asking God to do something, please. There are statements of lament where David is complaining to God about certain situations. And then there are also state, uh, statements of trusting in God. And David is acknowledging that God is faithful over everything. And he, is, he, he calls upon his faithfulness. And so you mix what typically is psalms that are dedicated to each of these issues. You will find all of those happening in Psalm 31. So as you study through this psalm, and again, I would encourage you to do this, but you, you, you see this uh, chiasm. You don't have to look that up. But basically the movement of the psalm goes like this. Trusting God, petitioning God, trusting God, pe uh, petitioning God, and then to the lament. Back to trusting God, to petitioning God, and ending with trusting God. So there's kind of this dance of emotion that, that David is dancing through as he is really, really wrestling with the difficulties of, of his life. Uh, trusting God and yet asking God questions and lamenting and feeling and grieving and experiencing the wise and then moving back to God's faithful. I don't know, maybe you're not like me, but maybe you don't experience life that way where in a single prayer you may experience a myriad of you know, you're praying before you eat, you're praying over food. You pray before a, an event, you're praying for health. You pray, but sometimes life is so complicated that your prayer is just like all over the place. Anybody? I just don't even know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. I know God is faithful, but this situation stinks. And I know that God is good, but why, Lord? It doesn't make sense to me. And again... You may not wrestle with that, but I want to admit to you that I do. I wish that David were a little less scattered and he would tell us exactly how we should pray here for strength and understanding, but uh, his prayer is pretty disorganized. But it's real and it's human. And uh, so what we want to do and need to do in, in prayer is exactly what we see in Psalm 31. We want to be honest with our prayer. We want to articulate things to the Lord. And obviously, as and you know, layers here, but as David is experiencing this cry out to God, multiple cries out to God, there's also this, but he's writing it down. 
uh, whether he is journaling it or whether he knows he's writing a song, we know that the Holy Spirit is preserving this as such because he expects for God's people to experience all of these things and to be able to lean into these truths to gain some kind of sense. And so I also want you to know that every one of David's petitions here, the basis of every petition is God. And it's God and his faithfulness that David knows, and he continually articulates here, that that God's faithfulness transcends every circumstance. And we know that. We're not going to spend much time on that. We know that God's faithfulness transcends the circumstances. But that does not do away with many of the circumstances that we will go through in life. So David looks in the past and he sees God's faithfulness in this psalm. And and then he asks about the future relying on God's faithfulness. And he knows that right here in the middle of it all, in the presence, even in the worst of situations, God is still God and he is faithful. And that's the message of Psalm 31. But there's a couple of things that I want us to see. And I want us to look first at verse 2. Well, verse 2 and 3 where David says, incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. I mean, listen to me, Lord, and don't make me wait. That's the Blaine version. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Who couldn't pray that? For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. So the first thing that I want to pull out from David's experiences here, and I think applies to to, to many of ours, is if you're going to humbly trust God, you must also humbly know God. You can't trust a God you don't know. That's not trust. That's naivety. You can't trust a God you don't know. This goes back to verse Two, where David asks, listen to this, this is so in, I don't even know what the word is, but David asks God to be his rock and fortress. And then in verse three, he declares that he is his rock and his fortress. So you are this Lord, but I don't feel it right now. I know that you are a rock. I know you are a safe place to run to, but right now I am weak and I am exposed And I need you to realize for me, Lord, what it means. I know that you are a rock. I know that you are stable. I know that you are safe. I know that you are secure. I know all of those, but I'm not experiencing that right now. But it's declaring that. It's knowing that to be true that gives you the hope to move in that direction. For a Christian, you may wonder what God is up to. But if you know him, you can move toward him. If you don't know him and all you have is blind faith, certain situations may cause you to recoil. Difficulties may cause you to move away from him. It's not because God is less true or your circumstance is worse. It's because you don't know him that way. You've never experienced him that way. And so, in other words, David is simply asking God to be God to him. I know who you are, but I need to experience who I have known you 
to be. God, be who you are. And I love this because David is not more specific than that. He doesn't tell God how to respond. He doesn't tell God what to do. He doesn't petition God and demand anything. He doesn't ask God to prove himself in any way. He says, I know you like this. I'm not experiencing you like this. And so you just be you and I will slowly be able to move back to this place of safety and security. David isn't bringing, and I want you to think about your own prayer life for a moment. But David isn't bringing to God his own agenda. Telling God how he would like for God to behave. And the things that he would like for God to do. He's not asking God to sign off on what he wants. He's not treating God like some divine butler to fetch him his comforts. He is saying, I know, I know that I can trust you in the long run. And so God, I give you permission to just be God and be patient for me while I wrap my head around that. You are a rock and you are my refuge. And I give you permission to stay right there until I get there too. But you can't humbly trust God if you don't humbly know God. If you don't know him as that going into difficulty, difficulty may push you away from him. And that's a sad state of affairs. So David is asking God to be who God has shown himself to be. That's what I want, David says. God, I want you. I want you. And that's what God promises, right? God doesn't always promise a primrose path. God doesn't promise like perfection. God doesn't promise roses. God says, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you. God promises his presence with us. And that's what David is echoing here. I want you. I trust you. Father knows best. And I know what I want, Lord. But I want to move to where your glory is. You be you and I'm okay with it. I just desire you, Lord. Don't leave my side. So in order for David to pray this way, he needs to know something about who God is in his nature. David's humble prayer to God flows from his knowledge, his pre-knowledge of God. And this makes sense to us. If we don't know God, then how can we know what to ask or what to expect of God in prayer? So think about your prayer. Do we come before God with our list of expectations and our list of not demands, but, you know, like we're trying to negotiate with God some things. And, man, I think some of the most precious prayers are just saying, Lord, I don't know, but I trust you. There's not a single thing that we could know about God apart from what God has already chosen to tell us. That means our knowledge of God is not what we think up ourselves, and that's what for many has become modern Christianity. God becomes what you want God to become, and that's the God you begin to worship. And it doesn't take much for you to realize that the God you worship isn't a sufficient God. We do not have the right to dream up the way that we want God to operate. The God that is, is the God that has revealed himself to us. And so I would say this, you must 
pray with your Bibles open. You must pray with your Bibles open. What do I mean by that? Literally, perhaps. But you need to know the God of the Bible, not the God of your circumstance. Because you might find your prayers misplaced. And if your prayers are misplaced, so will your safety and your security, and you'll move further and further away from Him, and your heart will slowly harden at each step of the way. This is where it gets really practical. And, and, and maybe you're in a dry season of prayer. And I know that I have been not in a dry season of prayer, but in a prayer where I... Re- recently, I just I try to pray, and it's like I, I just sit in silence. And, but man, when you open the Scripture and you just begin to, just to pray the Scripture, you, you learn how to speak to God and how God speaks in return. And so if you're going to humbly trust God, you've got to humbly know Him. And it's important to pray with emotional honesty. It's important to pray with truth. And you can come boldly before God, but you, almost, you also have to come humbly before Him. Because we couldn't possibly know the fullness of God. Even, the, even what we have been revealed to us isn't the fullness of has not been revealed to us because we couldn't possibly understand it. And so there's many, many layers where we get to know God through His Word. We learn to trust His Word. We learn to trust His faithfulness. And the God we pray to is the God that all of the saints of old has always prayed to. And we benefit from all of their experiences and God's faithfulness to them. And so, yes, the Bible says we can come boldly, and you can come boldly because of Jesus. But boldly into the throne room, it boldly up to the throne, demanding anything from God. We can come boldly before Him, but we pray before Him humbly, knowing who He is. And surrendering our desires for His glory. Let's down to verse 7. The psalmist says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. The second thing that I want to draw out here is that we have the ability to rejoice in God at every angle of life. There's not an angle where there can't be rejoicing in the Lord. In verse 7, David says, Rejoice and be glad in the steadfast love of God. And in the next four lines, he explains what steadfast love is. Of God has meant for him. Look at verse 7. Because you have seen my affliction, because of God's steadfast love and care, he sees your seeable afflictions. These are, and some of this is so simple, so don't get lost in the simplicity. What I'm trying to say is what I'm saying. I'm not trying to hide things, so just be patient as we work through these things. But he sees your seeable afflictions. He sees the external crisis that you're under, the external pressures. I think of uh, the children of Israel. You know, it was the Lord when He heard their cries, they were 
making bricks and busting rocks and they were working hard and he saw the external pressures that were upon them. But you know what God also sees? He sees the seeable things that people in your life sees. He also sees the seeable things in your life that nobody else sees. I think we all experience pressures. And sometimes the pressures are really obvious for the world to know what's going on in your life. But you know as well as I do, there are some things that, some external pressures that you're under that other people can't see. And you don't know how to talk about. God sees all of your external affliction. Not just the ones that everybody else is aware of. He sees it all. Which, you know, if you go just a little bit further, <laughs> you see David says, you have known the what? The distress of my soul. Where does that distress take place? He sees the external pressures, the external distresses, the circumstances of life, but he also sees the internal distresses of the soul, the feelings, the emotions, the fears, the pain, the anxiety. He sees the outside things. He sees the inside things that nobody else can see, and you don't know how to articulate to others. God knows the deep recesses of the heart, your thoughts, the invisible things that nobody knows. God knows it. In verse 8, David says, You have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. Whatever God sees in your seeable afflictions and whatever he knows about your unseeable distress, he does not quit. He will not deliver you to your enemies. We see this over and over throughout the Psalms. Many times the psalmist asking, God, don't give me to my enemies. They don't protect me from my enemies. And here he is declaring, you have not delivered me into the hands of my enemies. You know my circumstances, and he doesn't take advantage of them for your demise. He knows how you feel. He knows how you sense. He knows how you are emoting, and he doesn't use it as a disadvantage to get you. He knows the things that others can see. He knows how you feel. But he doesn't deliver you to your enemies. And that's hopeful. That's why it's called steadfast love. It's because he is keeping you constantly. Yes, you are exposed to circumstances. And you, he allows you to be exposed to certain emotions. But you are never exposed without him, without his presence. If you call upon his name, if you humbly know him, if you are coming, recognizing your need and drawing from his faithfulness. It gets even better. Look at verse 8. You have set my feet in a broad place. Now, I don't know about you. I'm from eastern Kentucky, Appalachia. I grew up in the woods, walking on trails. And some of those are... are well, even not trails, some of the roads that we drove on, there's like nothing on this side of the road and nothing on this side of the road. And, and sometimes you feel a little bit like, boy, this is, whew, this is terrifying, right? Sometimes life's that way, right? You're walking along life and it's like, man, both sides of my feet. I mean, I've got like a narrow place 
And the older you get, the more unbalanced you get, right? I was making that up. I really am not that unstable. Whoa, <laughs> I'm not that unstable. Just kidding. But you have these very narrow. So what the Lord does is when he sees the seeable things in your life and he knows how you feel about life. But you know what the Lord does? He's not trying to test your ability to stand. He picks you up and he sets you in a broad place. Isn't that beautiful? How would you know that you're in a broad place if you don't from time to time feel this? How could you declare that God is good, that God is a rock and God is a refuge if you don't experience the difficulties of life? None of us would ever draw up the circumstances that test those things in our life. But we need to, to be able to worship the God that the Scripture reveals. And what does the Scripture say? He sees you, He knows you, and He makes you to stand in broad places. The broadness is always in proportion to your need. The steadfast love, steadfast love of God means that God sees everything that can be seen, knows everything that is hidden, and He refuses to quit on you no matter what, and He has placed our feet on a giant rock, which means that God is involved in your life at every angle. He is involved, He is at work, and He can be glorified at every angle in your life. But you have to know Him. You have to know Him. Let's look at verse 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my ad adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Now look down to verse 22. I have said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. The third thing is we need to submit our felt reality to the truth of God. Is that the same way of saying that we need to just trust God? Sort of. But there, are, there is reality and there is felt reality or felt needs or the, the things that, the conclusions that you have drawn from your circumstances. And they may not always be correct. Your felt reality may not always be correct. And if you live based upon your felt reality, you might miss God altogether. You might be responding to the wrong things. And I know a lot of folks who end up having to go into counseling or they struggle with different circumstances of life because they have listened to the voice of felt reality rather than the truth of God's word. And so as your pastor, I would say, maybe this is a little bit more succinct, but we must drive our felt reality into the truth of who God's declared himself to be. 
So there, there is a way that seems right to us, but we have to take that and filter that through what God has already declared. What has God said about how I feel? And so this is the main section of lament in Psalm 31, verses 9 through 13, and then again in verse 22. But for David, it's like this physical and emotional weariness, this social conflict, this calculated sabotage, and then it turns into paranoia. It's been rough for him, and he is struggling. But in verse 14 and following, David gets back to the petition and the trust. David is recounting God's past faithfulness. Verse 22, listen to this, this is so important, I think. David said, in my alarm, what does it say he says? I said in my alarm, what? I am cut off, what? From your sight, you cannot see me when I am like, desperate when I don't know what to do and I forget how to breathe. Lord, I am cut off from your sight. You ever felt that way? Lord, do you care? Do you know? Are you aware of how I feel? Do you have any idea of what's going on? This is one of the reasons why we say to people all the time, God will never put more on you than you can bear. Because most of the time, people feel like they have more on them than they can bear. Often, that's a felt reality, not a truth from God's word. But we, we live and die by the felt reality. This is how I feel. This is my emotion. This is what I'm feeling. And we begin to live into that rather than in God's, the truth of God's word. I want you to do me a favor and turn to Psalm 30, verse 6. It may actually be up here. I'm not sure if I included it or not. So, so remember chapter 31 I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, which is kind of weird because he just said, if it's seeable, you see it. If it's feelable, you feel it, you know it. But when we're desperate, how do we feel? Cut off. But look at verse 30. Just a chapter ahead. As for me, I said in my prosperity... What? I shall not be moved. I shall never be moved. Listen, this is when a person like, this is the felt reality of, hey, I'm getting all I deserve. I've getting it. I've just got the raise. I just got the, the situation. I mean, life could not be better. In my prosperity, nothing can touch me. You ever felt like that? Man, everything is coming up, sunshine and rainbows. I mean, my life, whose life is better than mine? Maybe you've not felt that way, but maybe you have. Man, everything is going right. And I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Nothing can touch me. But you know what? That's just as much felt reality as in my alarm. You know which one of them is true? Neither. Neither one of them is true. They're felt reality. Of course, when things are going your way, you feel like you're indestructible. And when things couldn't get worse, you feel like God doesn't care. But you've got to take that truth, that felt reality, and drive that to God's truth, which is when you are in your prosperity, 
God reigns. You need to humble yourself before him because all good things come from him. It's all him all the time. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The one who gives and the one who takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when life couldn't get worse, blessed be the name of the Lord. Jehovah be praised a thousand hallelujahs. Because you do see me, Lord. You know how I feel. You are my rock and you are my refuge, my fortress. And I will wait for you, Lord. I will wait until I get there because I know you are immovable. Otherwise, we are slaves to our emotions. And neither one of them are right. Or they both are. If you're not recognizing your dependency upon the faithfulness of God, then your life is just riding a roller coaster. I, I want to be careful and say your, your felt reality, I mean, it's not wrong. It's just incomplete. There's more to it. Be honest with your circumstance. Be honest with how you feel. There's just more to it than how you feel. Look at Romans chapter 5. Verse 6. God has gone to great depths to reveal this. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A couple chapters later in Romans chapter 8, he says, in beginning in verse 31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, for it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor any other thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we know. That's what we know. And we take those felt reality and we move that into God's truth. That's what God has shown us. God loves you. So submit your felt reality to him. Let's look at verse 15. I'm almost done. This, and this is where this whole message came from. I remember this verse. And... Uh, yeah, I feel like the Lord 
has used it in my life this week. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. And we need to remember that God's got your whole world in His hands. Seems simple, doesn't it? Can you remember a song that you learned before? He's got the whole world in His hands. Isn't that like the most, the, the oldest, easiest song that we try to teach our kids? And yet it's tested, right? David's faith in verse 14, coming out of his lament, he says, But I trust you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. It's basically the same thing David said in verse 5. We didn't talk about verse 5. Well, we kind of did. But in verse 5 of Psalm 31... He says, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. And that last sentence is what was on the mind of Jesus just before he took his last breath. This was the last thing that Jesus said on the cross. So what does it mean? Why does Jesus choose to use Psalm 31 verse 5? And what does it tell us? You know, a lot of times when we see people quoting in the New Testament from the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, there is always a, a fuller context. It's like the quote is there, but when you go back and look and you see it, the context, it's like the whole context is what the quoter had in mind for the quote. And so for Jesus to quote just this single verse, Jesus has in mind the totality of Psalm 31. He just reduces it to the key point at the moment. So Jesus shows us that the faith of David, exampled for us in Psalm 31, has actually been a foreshadowing of his own faith. The worst of David's lament was only the beginning of what Jesus was experiencing on the cross. And yet Jesus trusted God. Jesus knew that the Father could see the seeable. And he knew that he knew The secrets of his soul. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Even though I've been walking through the valley of the shadow of death and now I'm staring death in the face, I know that I'm about to die and I'm about to enter the grave. Lord, I am yours. I entrust myself to you. I know that you've got me in your hands. Your hands are merciful and mighty and you're going to bring me through. And while I would pray to escape, I want to be with you and I just want you to be you and receive glory from me. See, these are the hands of a redeeming God, the hands of a faithful God who has you, the hands of resurrection power. And Jesus knew that. My times are in your hands. And he was so committed. He so committed himself and he yielded himself to God's hands. So what does it mean for us? Well, I think about John chapter 10, verse 27. 
where Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so Jesus gives us an image of how secure his salvation is. It's that he holds us in his hand and nobody can take us out of his hand. And he goes on to even deepen the security by explaining that he and the Father are one and we're also in the Father's hands. But I want you to think about what it means to be in Jesus' hands. Our times are in your hands, David said. Jesus said, we are in his hands. When Jesus resurrected and he appeared back to his disciples, there was one among them that had refused actually openly to believe. And when Jesus appeared in this room, he looked at Thomas and he said, See. Can you ever think about that? I know that you've thought about it. That the resurrected Jesus chose to bear the scars of his torture. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, chose so that he could say to Thomas, I get it, Thomas. Here, put your hand in here. I don't know if Thomas did or not. I don't think I would need to. I don't think Thomas needed to. doesn't matter. Here's what Jesus is saying. The hands that have you are nail-scarred hands. I get it. I get it. That's why he quoted Psalm 31. It's so that one day he would be able to say, I get it. And I want you to know that I lived out Psalm 31. I surrendered myself. I said to the Father, you be you, Father. God, I just want you, everything that I said and everything that I do, I want it to bring you glory. And I am broken and I am hurt, and I am anxious. But I'm going to give that to my fortress, and I'm going to move in that direction because I know you, Lord, and I trust you, Lord. And our times are in his hands. But they're not hands that haven't experienced what you're going through. They're hands who have. And that's the nearness of Jesus in our life for those who know him. Or you can live according to your felt needs or to your felt reality. Or you can make a choice to know him better and better and better according to his word, praying with the Bible open, learning from him, not praying to the God you hope he will be, but praying to the God he has revealed himself to be and it's okay to be in pain and it's okay to ask questions and it's okay to move from faith to struggle, from why to answers to standing firm to struggling. It's okay to do all of those things so long as we recognize that God will be glorified through all things because all things belong to him. He is our rock and our fortress. Do you want your life to bring him glory? Or do you want your circumstances, your devastation to be in vain? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness to us. We thank you for revealing humanity to us. 
not only through Jesus, but even the ancients walked us through what it looks like to trust you. And Jesus certainly put a stamp of approval upon David's formula. Because ultimately, Lord, it was your Holy Spirit that preserved David's formula for us to follow. So, Lord, today, while we don't have answers for the most devastating dilemmas of our life, we know that you're with us. We know that as we move toward you, the place that we stand gets broader and broader. So, Lord, for those that are here today who don't, maybe they're, they're living for the glory of their own felt reality and maybe didn't know it until today. It, sometimes we don't know why our life is a roller coaster, why sometimes we are in prosperity, and why sometimes we are you know, overtaken seemingly or alarmed, distressed. But, Lord, this morning I pray that you would you would add a salve to our hearts as we move towards you. But Lord, for those that are not in a right relationship with you, or they're not trusting your glory, not trusting your faithfulness, I pray that, pray that today would be a, a next step in realizing their need for you. Thank you, Lord, for seeing us, knowing us, loving us, committing to us allowing us to commit to you. Thank you for the nearness that we have and the ability that you have given us to be honest with how we feel. And thank you for allowing us to know your truth that we can filter our feelings through. Thank you, Lord, especially for the example of the nail-scarred hands that hold us in our times. You understand. And we cry out to you. Lord, be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.